This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're nearing the end of chapter 9. Matthew has been taking great pains to show the power of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's demonstrated Christ's power over disease, death, nature, and demons, as well as his power to forgive and transform. Today, we'll learn about Christ's power to restore, and that too should be of great interest to us. It's not hard to prove that we're all broken and in desperate need of restoration. Sadly, broken people often hate to see others restored, and their hard hearts will be unmoved by God's grace. But happily, Christ's compassion still wins and will be on full display as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's read Matthew 9, verses 27 to 34. And the Word of God says this, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open. And Jesus sternly warned him, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So church, what's happening here is Matthew, the gospel writer, is demonstrating to us that Jesus' power to restore confirms his divinity and his sympathy. Those are key words that I want you to know in this scene here. Jesus' power to restore demonstrates not only his divinity, but also his sympathy. We talked about this last time. We used the word compassion, but sympathy, the same thing, to suffer with, to demonstrate that you hurt for the people who are hurting. And that's a great example for us. But he is the majestic Savior who was able to restore. And in order for us to understand what's going on here and better, let's divide up this scene into its natural parts. And with that, what we have is a five-point outline. First of all, I want you to see a determined request, verses 27 through 28. The two blind men heard of the miracle worker in town. Remember, by this time, Jesus' fame was already spread throughout that part of Israel, the area of Capernaum. But they suspected that this one possessed divine attributes. Perhaps they read the book of Isaiah, and they considered, maybe this is it. Maybe Messiah is here. Maybe he's going to open our eyes. So Matthew says nothing about the cause of their disease, which is interesting here. We don't know if these folks were born blind. We don't know that. That's irrelevant. What he does identify to us is their agony. And the reason we know of their agony is because of the word that Matthew used to quote them. They were crying out. The Greek word for that, it's krazo, which means literally the shriek of a raven. And that word is actually a figure of speech. It's an onomatopoeia. The word means what it sounds We know exactly how that goes because we speak of the roar of the lion, for example. We speak of the boom of the explosion. Those are onomatopoeias, which means that in the original Greek that Matthew is using here, he's using a word to describe the greatest agony of heart possible at that time. It's almost unintelligible speech. 
But the original readers knew exactly what Matthew meant. That word is used in other parts of the New Testament. Well, by that time that Matthew wrote those words, that was a common word in that language, just like the words that I mentioned earlier, roar and boom or meow. These are familiar words, so they they knew exactly what he was talking about. But the point here for us to understand is that their agony of heart was so intense that this was, was almost beyond description. And somehow they managed to get the words out to implore pity, mercy. Actually, what they're saying here is this. The word that they use for mercy that Matthew quotes them is the word that means covenant honoring mercy, pity. In other words, they acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They acknowledge the divinity of Christ and they ask him to fulfill his messianic prophecies on them. He's saying, Lord, we are here. The Bible says the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. Here's an opportunity. Please have mercy on us. That is what they're saying. And we know that that's the case, that they believe that Jesus was the Messiah because of the title that they used to refer to Christ, Son of David. Now, I want you to know that before this, the only one time that Matthew used that title is in the very first verse of the gospel. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. So what's going on here, church, is that those two blind men hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, and they knew that for a fact, and that because of that, they knew that they would be healed both physically and spiritually. Now, here's something else I want you to know. The Jews at the time considered, mistakenly, blindness as a curse. They thought that if you're blind, it's because God has put a curse on you. The disciples of Jesus had that misunderstanding. We know that because they asked them a question. In John 9, verses 2 and 3, they said this, Rabbi, Who sinned this man, referring to a blind man, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither this man that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed on him. In other words, there was no curse here. That is my divine sovereignty on display here so that the power of God may be seen. Now, maybe the Jews of the time, including the disciples, misunderstood God's word to Moses in Leviticus 21, verse 21. When that passage reads, No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect, is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire, since he has a defect. But God is addressing the priests here, not people in general. And anybody who would consider the blind cursed by God, should have also read the words of God in Exodus 4, verse 1. God says this to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So here's the answer. God decides for his glory. God had not cursed these two men. That's very evident here. But their own people alienated them. And that is why they're crying out for mercy, because they were ostracized and excluded from the community of Israel. But they realized that the Messiah had arrived, so they pursued Jesus Christ diligently. They cry out, they follow him into the house, risking being asked to leave, being kicked out and saying, don't you realize you're not following the protocol, you're not supposed to come here? But somehow they follow Christ. And that demonstrates saving faith. People who are willing to recognize that they need Christ. And what we see here, church, is very clear. A display of the compassion of Christ, the majestic Savior who saves, who restores. And he responded to their determined request because he knew their faith. Look at verse 2 again. They brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. So we know that Jesus Christ is able to see people's faith. And in this case, once again, he demonstrates his divinity by seeing their faith. He is omniscient. 
He knows everything, and he knows that these guys were exercising saving faith by calling out to Jesus Christ, by recognizing the identity of Christ, by recognizing that he is the Messiah, and by recognizing that he is able to do it. He even asked them later, do you believe I can do that? Not because he needed information, because we already verified that he knows everything. But to cause them to make a public testimony, at least in the house there of Jesus Christ, to cause them to articulate their saving faith. In church, by now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen a pattern in the last two chapters here, chapter 8 and 9. And the pattern is this. Jesus always responds to genuine faith. He will never turn anyone away. He always responds. When you recognize your need of him, he will meet your greatest need. He may not meet your physical need immediately, but he will take care of your greatest need, which is salvation. When you realize you deserve condemnation, but you know that he will withhold judgment from you based on his goodness, then you're ready to receive salvation. You will be saved, which leads me to the next point here. Not only we have here in this scene a determined request, but number two, we have according to verses 29 and 31, a divine response. And once again, Jesus touched the untouchable. No one would have done that. No one would have come near those guys because they thought they were cursed, that they have sinned. That is a result of some sort of a sin. I don't want anything to do with sinners. Jesus touched the untouchable. And because they display saving faith, they received a great preview of the realities of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, kingdom of heaven is a key term in the book of Matthew here. And the gospel writer is demonstrating to us small previews of realities of the kingdom of heaven. And a great reality here that we see is that subjects of the kingdom of heaven, you and me, born again believers in Christ, will have glorified eyesight. No one will be blind in the kingdom of heaven because we will be restored fully, physically. And in this case, Jesus restored not only their physical sight, but also their spiritual sight. Because he saved them, they were ready now to see not only the world, perhaps for the very first time if they were born blind, but they could also finally have a correct biblical worldview. And this is what I want you to see here. Not only were they able to see the world for the very first time, but to have a proper biblical worldview. And that happens when Jesus saves people. Whether or not he restores our physical eyesight, when you become a believer in Christ, he will open your eyes so that you have a correct view of self, a correct view of God and correct view of others. So if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a subject of the kingdom of heaven, you have restored spiritual eyesight. And as a result, you are now able to have a correct view of self. You have a correct view of God and a correct view of others. Also, when Jesus heals you from spiritual blindness, you realize that God does not owe you anything. Have you considered that? See, what the world wants us to know is that if there is a God, he owes you a comfortable life. He owes you heaven if you only behave, if you're good. But the biblical worldview says, no, God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't even need us. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy perfect fellowship in the members of the Trinity, even before Genesis 1-1 when he said, let there be light. So he, does, he didn't need creation to complete him in any way, friend. Therefore, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Yet, he loves us so much that he not only created us, but now he redeems people who come to him in faith. Furthermore, when you became a believer, he opened your spiritual eyes and you are finally able to see other people from a biblical perspective. And that perspective says this in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see, that is completely the opposite of what the world and the flesh tell us. And what the world and the flesh tell us is, no, you're the most important people in your own world. 
But the Bible says, no, no, no. Consider others more important than yourselves because that's the biblical perspective. Now, let me give you an example of the contrast that Jesus himself gives that contrast between a spiritually blind and a spiritually restored person. He says this in Luke 18, verses 10 to 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. By the way, major red flag, praying to himself. God, I think that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So church, I can't think of a better way to describe the contrast between a spiritually blind person, yet very religious, and someone who has correct spiritual vision, eyesight, because he's able to see, have mercy on me, the sinner, while the religious guy, but still spiritually blind, says, thank God that I'm not like that guy. Only people who have been cured from spiritual blindness will accept and apply this principle. Now, friend, if like the Pharisee, you are quick to point out the sins of others and you refuse to look at your own, I'm afraid you need an appointment with a great optometrist who happens to be the great cardiologist as well. We constantly need to have both our spiritual vision and our heart checked. He'll adjust whatever needs to be adjusted in our life if you only ask him for mercy. Now look at verse 30 again. Interesting thought here. Jesus waited to perform this miracle inside the house. Now, that raises a bunch of questions here. But what we very clearly is he did not want this one to be public for one reason or another. Now, people speculate about the reason Jesus asked those guys to not make this public. And I want you to know, church, that if you only stick with the text, the answer is in the text. Okay? So if you're wondering about this, why did Jesus ask them to not make this public? Let me encourage you to keep reading the text because the answer settles the debate. You ready for the answer? Scripture omits that information. That's the answer. I'm okay with that. You should be okay with not having information too. You should be okay when God withholds information from you. And that's exactly what he's doing here. What we do know is something very clear that Matthew reveals to us here. The disobedience of those guys. They disobeyed a clear command from Jesus Christ. Even though they have just been saved, the very first request that Jesus asked them, don't tell anyone, keep this confidential for now. Obviously, people will see what happened to you. You will witness at the proper time, but I want you to stay quiet for now. They obviously didn't do what he asked them to do. And, and we shouldn't be too quick to judge those guys because we would have done the exact same thing because we are humans. So let's bring this to our own reality here, church. I am sure, I am sure that these guys had the best intentions. Maybe they thought they were doing Jesus a favor. Maybe they thought, well, we're doing the Lord's work. But we, <laughs> that's what we do as Christians. We, we have a terrible habit of sprinkling biblical language in our disobedience. We do this all the time, unfortunately, to conceal our disobedience and saying more than we, we should. See if you identify the following sentences. Maybe you've heard them, maybe you've uttered them before. I only want what's best for him or for her. That's why I'm giving you that information. I want what's best for you. That's why I'm telling you this. When you know full well that you're not supposed to be telling anything. Church, the problem is this. No matter how noble your intentions or mine, nothing justifies disobeying God. Absolutely nothing. 
We learn this from Samuel the prophet. When he was confronting Saul the king, he says this in 1 Samuel 15 verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And specifically, let me share with you the divine perspective on violating confidentiality because this is what these guys did here. Proverbs 11 verse 13. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who's trustworthy conceals a matter. Furthermore, through the pen of Solomon, God warns us there is a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 7. The question is, church, who determines the time to speak and the time to be silent? My perceived good intentions? No, no, no. The Word of God determines when it's time to be silent and when it's time to speak. If the Word of God says, don't say anything, we should keep our mouth shut. Now, if the Word of God says, share the good news, then we dare not keep our mouth shut. By the way, witnessing about Jesus Christ is the only non-restricted use of your tongue for those of us who are followers of Christ. Just like those two blind men, no matter your motivation, when you don't control your tongue, my friend, you are violating his command and you act like an untrustworthy tale bearer, according to the book of Proverbs. And God will never reward such behavior. Let's look at the third point here. Besides a determined request and a divine response, we have in verse 32, a dire reality. Matthew records another miracle that fulfills messianic prophecy. The previous verses here introduced us to two men who spoke too much. But now we have a man who spoke too little because he was demon-possessed. And by the way, let me make a disclaimer here. Please tame your tongue and never infer that speech impediment is demonic because you are going to hurt somebody if you say this. Evidently, what we do know here from Scripture is that demons can interfere with the physical realm. In this case, they shut the vocal cords of this guy, but the gospel provides very little details about this exorcism here. In fact, they only use one verse to describe what happened here. And Jesus demonstrates his divinity and sympathy. That's it. We have no details of how that took place. What we do know, again, is this. Somebody brought this man to Jesus Christ. And what a compassionate friend. What a great friend. Because by this time, news about Jesus Christ had spread all throughout that land, according to verse 26. So somebody figured, I'm going to take this guy to the only one who can fix his problem. To the only one who can save him. Now, church, the best thing you can do to someone... It's to bring him to Christ. Yes, it's okay to give him a $20 bill. It's okay to feed him, to clothe him. But the best thing you can ever do to someone is to bring that person to Jesus Christ. If you really want to be compassionate, tell him about Christ. Now, Jesus restored that man physically. But Matthew does not tell us whether the man became a follower of Christ. We can only hope. Under divine inspiration, he recorded for us the response of others. So that leads me to the next point that I want you to see. After showing us a determined request, a divine response, and a dire reality, Scripture now shows us a dramatic reaction in verse 33. A dramatic reaction. After witnessing Christ's power over demonic activity, the crowds responded in amazement. And the word that Matthew uses here to describe their reaction is the word for wonder and marvel. He even quotes their unified commentary. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So it's an unprecedented, from their perspective, an unprecedented thing that happened. Hopefully, most people there connected the unprecedented miracle with the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. That's what we can hope that they're saying. Perhaps this is what's going on. Messiah is here. Jesus then proves that he fulfills messianic prophecies. He proves his divinity and he demonstrates his sympathy. But besides a determined request, a divine response, a dire reality, a dramatic reaction, finally, I want you to know that 
According to verse 34, Scripture shows us a disastrous rationale. By now in his gospel, Matthew has already identified the Pharisaical hatred towards Christ, people who hated Jesus Christ, the Pharisees. They accused him of blasphemy. You remember that in verse 3. Then they criticized him for mingling with sinners. That's in verse 11. That's his mission. They criticized him for that. They also opposed him for not practicing their outward ritual misinterpretation of a spiritual discipline. That's in verses 14 through 17, talking about fasting. And now, after witnessing another demonstration of Jesus' divinity, their hard hearts refuse to consider that, yeah, maybe this guy is the Messiah. Perhaps he's here. Perhaps this is the Messianic age. But they refuse to recognize that. Why? Because of their evil hearts. Remember, Jesus Christ already identified the evil in their hearts. And now it becomes clearer than ever that these guys were in opposition of Jesus Christ because they hate God, even though they're religious people. They hate God. They didn't deny the legitimacy of the exorcism. You notice that? They didn't deny that. They misidentified the source of the power and the authority. And Matthew, therefore, demonstrates the downward spiral of an evil heart. No one bothered to check the facts. They just rushed to judgment. No one bothered to check the fact about the identity of Christ. They rushed to the conclusion that his power comes from Satan. And my friend, when you get to that point, you're almost beyond hope here. Because their heart is so hard, obviously there are some Pharisees that became believers. We know a very famous one in the Bible. But shockingly, again, these guys are the most religious people you would ever meet. They knew the Bible cover to cover, the Old Testament. And yet they misrepresented, misunderstood, and misapplied biblical truth because of their evil hearts. Now, something very alarming here that I want us to see. This is something we all need to watch out for. Sounding and looking religious means nothing for God if your heart is not right. Did you catch that? Sounding and looking religious means nothing to God if there is no compassion in your heart, if there is no room for grace in your heart. This passage here gives us a great example of a self-righteous, hypocritical heart that resents the restoration of others. Rather, the pharisaical mindset here prefers to second-guess people's motivation. They prefer to second-guess the benevolence that they just saw, and they pass on judgment. Now, people like that claim to know the Bible. And there, there are modern versions of people like that too. We know some of them. I know some of them, and you probably do too. People like that claim to know the Bible, but they turn against you when you demonstrate Christ-like compassion, when you demonstrate kindness, when you demonstrate forgiveness, when you demonstrate and you want to be a channel of restoration. They will resent you and they will hate you for that. Because you desire to restore the sinner. Now let's not miss the sharp warning here, church. Don't miss this. Look at verse 34 again. And draw a line between verse 34 and verse 13. Verse 34, the Pharisees are saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. In verse 13, Jesus is very clear that he's not interested in any demonstration of outward religiosity unless your heart is full of compassion. You see, these guys whose hearts were evil didn't have any room for compassion, no room for grace, only self-righteousness, only saying, well, they are the sinners. They refuse to look at the log in their own eyes, and they say, Satan is the author of all of this, because there was no room for compassion in their hearts. And that is, unfortunately, very common today too. Let me share this truth using the language of Paul in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. As those who have been chosen of God, and that's you and me, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Church, anything contrary to that reveals a disastrous rationale about the compassion of Christ. He is not interested in religiosity, outward expressions, or the facade. He's interested in what's in the heart. And if you have no room in your heart for compassion, for kindness, for humility, for the desire to restore sinners, for the desire to forgive, you need an appointment with a great cardiologist. Jesus' power to restore confirms his divinity and his sympathy. And we are to imitate his sympathy. We can't imitate his divinity. Although we can live our lives in a way that people will see Jesus who lives in us. But I can't promise you he will restore your physical predicaments. But he will revive your soul. If anyone here is not yet a believer in Christ, he promises, I am the bread of life. And if he comes to me, he will no longer hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. You'll also be able to order our second book based on Pastor Pierre's sermon series. Ruth and the Kindness of God is an excellent read for anyone struggling to understand tragedy or deal with trauma. Get a copy today for you or someone you know that needs to hear how God uses difficult times for our good and His glory. Again, this book and pastor study of the book of Revelation are both available on truthwithgrace.org. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.